Well, I welcome you all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're all very welcome tonight to our worship. Um, the announcements just for the incoming week are uh, on Monday evening at half past seven, there's a meeting of the Northern Presbytery in Clock Mills. And then on Thursday is our midweek service at half past seven. Next Sabbath day, Sabbath school at the usual time. And two services, God willing, I'll be back again uh, in, the, in the pulpit. Uh, I have to serve notice uh, according to our church code that we will be holding an election for deacons after the service on the 17th of March. It'll be a uh, short, not two minutes by any means, but it'll not be a long business meeting after the, after the service where we are uh, hoping that the Lord will provide us with three deacons, or deacons-elect, uh, in, his, in his will. And then just to give also notice of the uh, first ladies' meeting for this year, uh, it's planned for Monday the 25th of March at, at half past seven. Um, and the speaker to be arranged. So, um, more on that at another date. Beloved, uh, grace and love and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The word of the Lord from Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9 reads, but I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Amen. Let us worship Almighty God. Let us call upon the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. In the life of David. Second Samuel chapter 11 and reading at verse 1. And it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an eventide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived, and sent, and told David, and said, I am with child. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was come on to him, David demanded of him how Joab did, and how the people did, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, 
and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down unto thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open field. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass when Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, When thou hast made an end of telling the matters of the war unto the king, and if it so be that the king's wrath arise, and he say unto thee, Wherefore approach ye so nigh unto the city when ye did fight? Knew ye not that they would shoot from the wall? Who smote Abimelech the son of Jerubbosheth? Did not a woman cast a piece of a millstone upon him from the wall, that he died in Thebes? Why went ye nigh the wall? Then say thou, thy servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead also. So the messenger went and came and showed David all that Joab had sent for him. And the messenger said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out unto us in the field. And we were upon them even unto the entering in or the entering of the gate. And the shooters shot from off the wall upon thy servants. And some of the king's servants be dead. And thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said unto the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Job, let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage thy him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife, and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And amen. My title this evening is Bathsheba Gate. Bathsheba Gate. 
Over the course of our study in the life of David, I have frequently referred to David as a type of Christ. And he is. But by his conduct in the chapter before us, he is more of a type of devil in the way he goes about his business. The man who I've repeatedly referred to and will do, no doubt, in the days ahead, as the man after God's own heart, shows us that still uh, there is a a remnant or there is a, a residue of the deceitfulness above all things and the desperately wickedness of the heart, even in the regenerate, even in the man or woman with a new heart. There's still that remnant of sin to bedevil us, even the very best of saints. It was only last time, if you can recall, that we lauded David's uh, kindness, how he went the extra mile with his kindness. You'll recall how hot off the heels of showing kindness to Mephibosheth, he went on immediately to show kindness to the king of Ammon, Hanon. Chapter 9 and chapter 10 show David going from kindness to kindness. And then you come into chapter 11 and you see him going from kindness to adultery and to murder. Now how could that be? Hot on the heels of virtue are the high heels of vice. How could that be? How is it that another of God's choice servants could say, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both to prison and to death. And then in the very next breath, to deny the Lord with an oath and say, I know not the man. How do you explain such virtue and in such face so quickly after one another? Well, of course we know. And the answer is sin. And we ought not, as God's people, to underestimate the potency of sin remaining in us just because we refer to it sometimes as remaining sin. It would be very easy to think of there's, there's just a wee bit left in the Christian. Uh, that, uh, that all the concentrated strength of our old Adamic sin has been diluted away down now, so that it's not anywhere as, as strong as it once was. Well, maybe it's not as strong as it once was, but it's still strong enough. To bring you to, the, to do some of the things that, that David does. Don't underestimate your sin, beloved. And also, don't rest on your laurels of all the good that you did yesterday. And all the good that you did the day before. Bathsheba gate. And, when it, and, and that name, I don't know where you picked up on that, but that's a sort of a play on Watergate or some of these other gates. Bathsheba Gate, and there's a reason why I'm referring to it in that, those terms. We'll hear later. But Bathsheba Gate 
is a warning shot across the bow of the saints. Lest, after ye have preached to others, you make shipwreck. You make shipwreck of your Christian testimony. You make shipwreck of your good name and reputation. And perhaps even, if it were possible, make shipwreck concerning your faith. John Calvin begins his commentary on this chapter with the words, Now here is a story which should make our hair stand up. I thought that that was a a nice way to begin it. Here's a story which should make the hair of all God's people to stand on edge. Now the sorry episode begins in verse 1 where we read, At the time when kings go forth to battle. There's a time for kings to go forth to battle. And Solomon Ecclesiastes 3 told us that there's a time for war as well as there is a time for peace. There is a time for the powers that be to bear the sword and to do so not in vain. To go out to war to defend their borders. To go to war to protect their people. To go to war to repel their enemies. To go to war to reclaim their territories. To go to war to inflict justice on their trespassers. There's a time for war. But not this time. Apparently for David. Instead of going to war, instead of as the king, instead of being at the head of the hosts of Israel and going to war, David is found here in verse 1 at ease. In Zion. The first pieces of furniture. Which the Holy Spirit. Has arranged for our instruction. In all of this chapter. Is that David's calamities began. When he lazily neglected. His duty. That's what the Holy Spirit is. Showing us. From the outset. That David's calamitous fall. Came about. Because. He lazily neglected his duty as the king. Had he been at his kingly post instead of at his bed post, we would never have heard, history would never have heard of David and Bathsheba. David was safer on the battlefield that he was lying in his own bed. Because that's where his duty was. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding off the hands to sleep, instead of doing what you ought to do, what does it do? It invites trouble. The devil makes work for hands idle. Of their Christian duty. God only knows. What you might instead watch. Or what you might instead do. At the time. When Christians go forth. To battle through uh, the rain. To get the church. 
or at the time when Christians go forth to battle through stuttering words and cold affections to pray. Or when Christians, at the time when Christians go forth uh, to battle against principalities and powers to give out gospel invitations or gospel tracts or whatever the case might be. God knows only what we'll end up doing or watching or getting involved in when we're not doing our duty. Preferring lazily, lazily to stay at home. It's not about staying at home per se because there, there are some valid reasons to stay at home. But just out of laziness, neglecting our duty, who knows where it could end up. The safest place in all the world for a believer is being found in the way of his or her Christian duty. For neglect of doing your duty, a man's own castle is not even secure to him or her. Their own castles. And that's what we see here from the outset. How do you explain all that came upon David? Well, we're told by the Holy Spirit because he didn't do what he should have been doing as far as his duty was concerned. In verse 2, it came to pass in an even tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. If David was to be blamed for having led himself into temptation by neglecting his duty as king, then Bathsheba is to be blamed for neglecting her duty as a woman. That the woman adorned themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness which becometh women professing godliness. That was Bathsheba's and all women's responsibility aren't you there? To behold, to adorn themselves in modesty and shamefacedness. All that was needed here from, from her was a pair of pulled over curtains. And her modesty was taken care of. There's no reason to believe here that in putting herself or being in the window wherever she was, there's no reason to believe here that Bathsheba deliberately uh, was putting herself in the shop window, so to speak. There's no reason here to believe that, that, that her indiscretion was uh, deliberate to attract attention. That will be reading into it too much. But there's no doubt whatsoever that Bathsheba should have been more discreet. She should have been more careful that no one inadvertently, that seems to be the way it happened, no one inadvertently had seen 
her nakedness. Such is the calibration of the male eye that the fairer sex should always keep in mind that even a glimpse of a well-turned heel is sometimes all it takes to get a man's pulses racing. That's the way men are made. Well, many of us. The women folk are their brother's keeper. And should bear this in mind. 21st century man. Well, we don't go up onto our rooftops in our part of the world with our construction of homes. But in the 21st century, men can hardly go up into their own roof space and walk around their, com- their, their, their converted roof space and walk around their computer except from out of nowhere, inadvertently. There's a semi-naked beauty right in front of their very eyes. Our culture here in the West is a sort of off-the-peg semi-nakedness so that when a man goes out in the eventide for a walk in the park or for a walk around the town or for a walk with his dog, it's hard, especially with the good weather coming in, it's hard not to see more flesh than is healthy for us. I, I think I mentioned one time in a sermon about, uh, about women. That I think I started with the words of Tommy Manat. Sometimes it's hard to be a woman. Well, sometimes it's hard to be a man. When you live in the United Kingdom with the immodesty, which is often on parade, especially in the spring and summer times, for obvious reasons. What's the answer to that? Is it uh, a burqa society where we insist that the women wear black from head to toe and all we can see is their, their eyelids? Well, obviously not, because that doesn't work either. But as Job said in chapter 31, verse 1, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why should I think upon a maid? You see, what Job was really getting at there was, Job was saying, I'm mortifying my sin. That's what we're talking about. What's needed? It's not insisting that the women were black from head to toe. It's the mortification of sin. That's the thing. It's the, what Jesus spoke about, plucking out red eyes. If they offend thee. Because uh, as John Owen said. Every unclean thought. Or glance. Would become adultery. If sin. Had its way. Sin he says. Always aims. At the uttermost. Sin is. uh, It's like the worm. It's like the grave. Sin. Is never content. It's never at rest. It always wants more flesh. So we need to mortify sin. 
The whole scene before us has all the classical hallmarks of a honey trap that Satan had set for David. But David didn't need that. David had all the traps within himself. As we all do. Because out of the heart of man, out of the heart of man, proceeds, amongst other things, adulteries. David had a dozen or more honeys downstairs in all in his different bedrooms. He, he maybe had more than 12 wives. So he didn't need the devil to, to tempt him. David, David was his own worst enemy in not being satisfied with one wife. David's Achilles heel was a pair of high heels. Now speaking of, the, speaking of heels, David didn't take to his heels the way Joseph did whenever Potiphar's wife made a play on him. Uh, we're told that the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And there are many beautiful women to look upon, for sure. But David's look went beyond the type of aesthetic admiring the woman the way you might look on the Mona Lisa and think to yourself, that's beautiful. And then move on. David went past an aesthetic look and said, oh, she's a beautiful woman. And then move on. David moved on to the place where Eve was. Eve saw the tree of knowledge and it was pleasant to the eyes. That's okay. But it was a tree to be desired. That was the thing. That was uh, from admire to desire. That's the threshold. When you go from admiring to desiring. That was the movement that David went when he beheld Bathsheba. So, um, yes, if you want to say David was idle and the devil was busy, and somebody would say that, oh, the devil's always busy, and he is. But the truth of the matter is, as James says, every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. And entice. Then when lust have conceived. It bringeth forth sin. And sin. When it is finished. Bringeth forth death. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust. That's why John Owen. In that passage I referred to earlier. Finished the whole thing off by saying. Be killing sin. Or sin will be killing you. We know men, you know men, whose profession of faith was killed. Killed. We know preachers whose ministries were killed. We know some ministers who literally, literally were killed. Because they ignored the warnings of Proverbs chapter 7. And they went the way to her house. Her house 
is the way to hell. Going down to the chambers of death. So let not thine heart decline under her ways. Go not astray in her paths. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Even the strongest of men. As David was. As we've seen all the way through this study. We see David passing through the street near her corner. Like one of the simple lads. Whenever he sends and makes inquiry, who's that woman there? He's passing past her street when he made inquiries, who is this mystery woman? And when the answer came back in verse 3, well, she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That should have been the end of it. That should have nipped it in the bud. The wire fence, thou shalt not commit adultery, was electrified, became an electric fence by the commandment, thou shalt not cover, covet thy neighbor's wife. Those two should have kept David well back from the fence, lest he get burnt. I remember hearing a preacher uh, some years ago say, maybe 10 years ago, saying in a sermon, he was preaching on the doctrine of sin. And he said, and I'm sort of paraphrasing this, but he said that once you start on the path of, or on a particular path of sin, once you start off on it, it's like running downhill. It gathers momentum. And it carries you down and down faster and faster until you can't stop yourself. Tragically, the same man who preached that sermon, who was one of my favorite preachers, just a few years afterwards, committed suicide under allegations of marital infidelity obviously he began to run downhill and he couldn't stop himself and that's the momentum that's taken hold now of David he can't stop himself even when he hears this is another man's wife and so he, like Eve, he takes off the forbidden fruit of another man's wife and he eats. As verse 4 says, she came in unto him. And in those haunting words, and he lay with her. He lay with her. He lay with her. Whenever I go out walking the dog, uh, I went out walking the dog down around Mosley Mill a couple of years ago and the wee security mom sometimes comes out to talk to you and um, uh, I seen a Bible in his car one day and I got talking to him and um, I told him I was a minister and so forth and just out of the blue he just said to me I've got a, I've got a sermon for you. David, and it was it's this passage, he says three points for you. David looked, David lusted, 
and David left. Now, you don't get many security men who give you a three-point sermon. But that's what happened. David looked, he lusted, and he lay with her. Proverbs 6.32 says, But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. And that's true. His reproach shall not be wiped away. Think about it. Despite the generality of David's life being one of godliness and devotion to the Lord, the fact that David is immortalized in history for this moment when he lay with her is proof positive that the mud of adultery it sticks. And it sticks probably in a way which is not even true for any other sin, even murder. Even murder. We talk about David and Bathsheba. But nobody ever talks about David and Uriah. That he killed. He had him killed. But we remember David and Bathsheba. His reproach has not been wiped away 3,000 years later. Now, thankfully, there's good news. The gospel is good news. Christ's blood can and will and does upon the adulterer's confession and the adulterer repenting. Sin uh, through Christ uh, can wipe away the slate and does wipe away the slate upon con confession and repentance. But it doesn't wipe away the, the stain. The slate's wiped clean as far as God's justice is concerned, or God's condemnation is concerned. But the stain, it stays. It's fair to say that the reproach of a man's own name, his own reputation being lost, is the least disincentive to commit adultery compared to the reproach which is done to God's name. Compared to the fallout of adultery, the breaking of the commandments, the breaking of the covenant of youth, with the wife of thy youth, the breaking of trust between a husband and wife, and then perhaps worst of all, the breaking of the heart, maybe the breaking of a family, but the breaking of a woman in tears. John Calvin was right. This should make our hairs stand up on our heads. And say, Our Father who art in heaven, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity. Now that's all there had been to it. My sermon tonight would have been simply uh, David and Bathsheba. One night, see the affair, David and Bathsheba. But that wasn't there, was it? This is Bathsheba Gate. 
Because whenever David hears in verse 5 from Bathsheba, I am with child, it spins a whole tangled web and takes in a whole life of its own. You've heard of Watergate? Some of you are a bit older. Well, this is Bathsheba Gate. Or perhaps Monica Gate, for some of you who remember Bill Clinton. And what happens here with David? It makes like it makes Watergate and Monica Gate seem like Jack and Jill stories in comparison. Committing sin in general, but committing the sin of adultery braids like a rat. It braids like a rat. It breeds lies and deceit and cover-up and hypocrisy and gain and conniving. And all these little rats scurry all the way through from verse 6 to the end of the chapter with their long tails as David tries to get, him off, get himself off the hook. I am with child. There's no such thing as illegitimate children. Only illegitimate parents. To avoid the scandal, David, by hook and by crook, tries to get himself. By hook, he, he calls Uriah to himself from the field, as if he's very important. He wants him to give him a war. How's it going in the war? A war briefing in verse 7. Uh, by the hook, he gives him a gift in verse 8. He gives him a mess of meat from the king. And by hook, he gets him drunk in verse 13. All these things were connived by David in order that Uriah might go down to his own house and lie with his wife and hey presto, the baby's his. But Uriah the Hittite was made of better stuff than that. He was a soldier of honor. He didn't take David's bait. So David turned to the crook of hiring Joab in verse 15 to arrange his death. Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. And that's how it plays itself out, isn't it? Verse 26, And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband, and when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her in his house, and she became his wife, and bore him a son. And they lived happily ever after. I don't think so. I don't think so. They lived, as we'll hear next week, with the sword of the Lord hanging over their necks. Or he did. Ever after. Because the chapter ends with the words, but the thing that David did, had, or David had done displeased the Lord. That ought to have made David's hair to stand on its head. Because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A Messiah like David? Is that what the Jews really wanted? 
a Messiah like King David. Uh, is that why they were disappointed when Jesus turned up that he wasn't like David? Is that what they really wanted? Someone like David? If they wanted someone like David, well, let them have Muhammad. On the evidence of this chapter, a type of Christ was always going to be a very, very poultry type of Christ. The kingdom of God is only safe in the hands of one king and one king only, our David. Our David has got one bride and one bride only. Since he looked upon her, his heart ran away to heaven with his church. His head is never turned to another because his eyes are as the eyes of doves, washed with milk and fitly salt. Great is his covenant faithfulness. God help you and I, beloved Christian, to have more of the Shulamite about us than the Bathsheba. God grant unto you and I that we might say with the psalmist, there is none in heaven that I desire beside thee, or on earth beside thee. Amen. Let us stand to pray. And the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.